encamped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. And so as we've been going through the book of Numbers, of course, uh, we're at this point of the book of Numbers where the children of Israel are near the end of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And one of the things that makes the book of Numbers so important to you and to me, it shows us and tells us why the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. It wasn't the initial plan of God or will of God that they would spend that much time out in the wilderness. His desire was to move them into the promised land, which he had promised to them. And of course, in the book of Exodus, as they would leave Egypt and they would come to the mountain of God there in Exodus chapter 19, that the Lord made a covenant with his people. And he said, if you obey me, follow my statutes, then you will be a special people unto me. And so he would give them the law. He would establish that covenant with them. It would be Moses on the mountain of God that was receiving the law of God. And also, as we saw in the book of Exodus, that he would receive the pattern for the tabernacle. We've been talking about that quite extensively, even on Sunday morning in the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle and the priestly ministry that took place there and the animal sacrifices were just a shadow and a copy of the reality, the heavenly sanctuary, and the reality, the substance being Jesus Christ, who became the sacrifice for us as he went into the heavenly sanctuary, as we saw, into the holiest of all to present his blood as a sacrifice that would then provide forgiveness of sin. He did it once and for all for the remission of sin. And so it's a wonderful truth that is declared to us in Scripture. The animal sacrifices could not do that. They just, again, were pointing to the fact and to the time when Jesus Christ would come and finish the work of forgiveness and also for salvation. And so that would be built there in the wilderness. It took them about a year to construct the tabernacle and the furnishings and the priestly garments. And then the book of Leviticus, of course, as we saw, took place a time period about 30 days as the priests were there established and consecrated um, and then presented to the people for their priestly ministry. It would be now the book of Numbers that tells us more of the experience of what happened out there to the children of Israel in that 40 years that they were there. And in the second year of the Exodus, a census was taken, and we know that in chapter 26, we're going to see next time another census that's going to be taken, and this is going to be the new generation that's going to go into the promised land that God's going to give to them. And, of course, the important lessons that we have seen in the book of Numbers, and and I know I'm reiterating this, but I want to because it's extremely important for us to understand this, that there are things that will keep us in the wilderness in our journey with the Lord. The Lord desires for us to be established in Him, to be established in belief, to have a soft heart that is teachable, for us to, to be walking in faith, to be trusting in his promises, to be established in him. And as we saw last week in chapter 21, in our journey, the enemy's going to come against us just as they did against the children of Israel. There's going to be times where it seems like that, Lord, there's setbacks in our lives. Just as there was a setback and they had to go around Edom and it was a long way around, they became very discouraged. But one of the things that we can be sure of is that God's word is true and his promises are true. And as long as we are living by faith and looking forward to the Lord and knowing that he's going to to see those promises come to pass, that we can trust in him, that he is our solid ground, just as we have sung here tonight, that you will experience that abundant life that the Lord has for you. That is a life of Christian victorious living. You will experience that peace and, and the blessings of the Lord of strength and wisdom and all the things that the Lord desires for us to experience. If we live our lives, our Christian lives, where we're murmuring and complaining like the children of Israel did. Eight times it's recorded in the book of Numbers where they complained against God's provision, where they complained about being out in the wilderness. There was a hardness of heart. There was a sin of continual disobedience and unbelief. They said we're going to die in the promised land when they heard that there was giants that were there. And the Lord had specifically told them no. That, that I'm going to drive out those giants and I'm going to drive out those inhabitants and you're going to take the land and you're going to prosper and you're going to be blessed as you live for me. But yet it would now be the wilderness being a large graveyard as nearly three, you know, three million people uh, are out there. And we're going to see that new census that there's only two of those individuals in the census that we saw in chapter one that went into the promised land that came out of Egypt. And that was Joshua and Caleb. 
So important lessons that we've looked at very carefully. There are some more important lessons as we continue in chapter 22. And that is we're going to be looking at an individual named Balaam. He's an interesting individual, one of the most interesting people that we see in all of Scripture. And he's one that's kind of difficult to evaluate. But as we do go through, we're going to see again some important lessons on what not to do, on what the Lord's desire for us uh, to not get involved in, and that is greediness and covetousness and desiring the, the wages of unrighteous uh, money, greediness and all of this. And so there are those who will come along, and as we look at uh, Balaam here, um, that is going to be hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites. Now remember that the children of Israel, that they went away around Edom. As they're making their way up to the border of the Promised Land. They're going to come up to the east side of the Jordan River, right across where they're going to, to go, across the Jordan River into the Promised Land is Jericho. It's the Jordan Valley there. That's right on the border of where the Moabites are. The Moabites are on the east side of the Jordan River. To the south of them was the Edomites. And you recall that in chapter 20, that it was Moses that asked the king of the Edomites, can we just pass on the king's highway? We're not going to go to the left. We won't go to the right. We won't eat your vineyards. We won't drink of your water. We just want to pass through. And, And it was the king of Edom that said, no, we will come against you. And the Lord had told Moses that they were not going to go to war against Edom because the Edomites were the brethren of the children of Israel. In other words, it was Esau and Jacob, brothers, twin brothers. It would be the direct descendants of Esau who became the Edomites. And it would be Jacob, of course, that would receive the covenant and the promise and his 12 sons. The covenant would go through the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. But at this time, the Lord didn't want them to battle against the Edomites. So he wanted them to go around, and that's where they got discouraged, chapter 21. And they go up north, and they end up doing battle against the Amorites, and the king uh, Shihon, who was the king of the Amorites, defeated them. And then also up north, there is Bashan, and they defeated King Og, the king of Bashan. And so that word is now gotten out, as we read in verse 1, to the king of Moab. So they're making their way kind of south, and then they want to cross. And here the king of Moab, he hears about the children of Israel are, are now in the land. And so we read in verse 2, Now Balak, the son of Zippar, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this country will lick up everything around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippar, was king of the Moabites at that time. So here is uh, Balak. He's the king of Moab. He sees the children of Israel uh, there at his borders and coming into his land. And he's very much afraid. It says here he was exceedingly afraid, and, and the people became afraid. He was full of dread because of the children of Israel. And he had heard what they had done to the king of the Amorites and the king of Bashan. That he had, the children of Israel defeated them soundly. So he knows that it's not good for him, that if he goes to battle, that he's going to get defeated. He says, this company, there's many of them, they're going to to just wipe us clean, lick us up all around us like an ox licks up grass in the field. So he is very much afraid. Now here's the thing. Balak didn't have anything to fear. Because when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, it says that God told Moses not to fight the Moabites because he wasn't going to give them that land, that portion of land where the Moabites were living. So the king of Moabite here, uh, Balak, really has no reason to be afraid. And I think right there, there's an important lesson for us in a couple different ways. Number one, he wouldn't know what God's word was to Moses because this king is not a believer. This king is not of the children of Israel. This king is not uh, one who is hearing from God. He is one, as we're going to see, is a pagan worshiper. And so he doesn't know what God's word has to say. And folks, we know a lot of people that are linked to us in our lives, those who work with us and those who live next to us and perhaps those who are in our own family. Maybe we'll be with some of them over this holiday weekend. That they're very much afraid because they don't know what God's word has to say. And we as Christians, the scripture says, that he hasn't given us the spirit of fear. We don't have to be afraid. All throughout scriptures, we are told as believers, 
as we are trusting in the Lord and as we are submitted to Him, that we don't have to be afraid. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of love and power and of sound mind. And we can give the message that, of good news, the gospel, that God loves them, Jesus came and died for them, and they have opportunity to receive eternal life as they turn to Him and put their faith and trust in Him and surrender their lives to Him. That's something that we can give to them so they no longer have to be afraid. But that's why it's so important that you and I, that we're able to give people the truth because there's a lot of people out there that are afraid because they don't know God's truth. And there's a lot of voices that are out there in the world with a lot of different messages. And what they need to hear is the truth. And Moses had the truth, and they weren't going to go to war against the Moabites. But let's bring it home a little bit closer for us, that there are times in our own lives or in the body of Christ that there are battles that take place or there's fears that we have because we're not looking to the Word of God. And I think that in every situation that we face, whether that it's with a brother or sister or whether it's concerning the body of Christ, whatever it might be, whatever area of our lives, that you and I as Christians, that we always look to the Word of God to give us guidance and give us wisdom. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live in His wisdom, not in the world's wisdom, not in the world's philosophy. But we have God's word here, and the reason that we go through it so carefully is so we can gain God's wisdom and know his ways and have the insights. And I don't know about you, but I think probably most of you would agree with me that what a tremendous blessing in the time that you just spend in growing in God's word and going through these books, how you gain God's wisdom and instructions and you know his ways, and it's beneficial for everyday living. He has the answers. The Bible has the answers. And I think it's very, very sad when we see more and more Christians that are turning away from the Word of God and turning to the world for answers and for wisdom and for direction, for strength, for peace, whatever it might be, for comfort, when we have it in the Word of God and the Spirit of God that is living in our lives. So we don't have to be afraid because we have the hope of heaven. We are forgiven. We belong to the Lord. And we can walk in wisdom and, and have the direction of God in our lives. So here was this king. He's very much afraid. So now what he's going to do is he, verse 5, sends messengers to Balaam, the son of Peor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, the people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So this king of Moab, he's afraid. He knows that if he goes militarily, uh, this fight against the children of Israel, that he's going to get whipped, that he's going to get defeated. So he's thinking, what can I do? So he ends up sending some of his leaders to go find this individual, this individual that's uh, over there by, um, by Pethor, which is near the river. In other words, he's talking 300 miles to the east. And the river here is speaking of the river Euphrates, which is over in the modern-day country of Iraq. It was the area of the Chaldeans at that time, later on Babylon in the days of Daniel, wasn't it? So there is this prophet that's well-known. And here's what Balaam comes in. And as I told you, he's an interesting individual, difficult to evaluate, but important lessons in these chapters that we need to look at concerning this individual. There are those who, who follow the thought that perhaps Balaam was a genuine prophet of God. And the reason is, is because he's going to speak four beautiful prophecies concerning the children of Israel. There's also going to be, and perhaps as we go through this chapter in, in um, looking at this, particularly in verse 18, that it seems like that he says that I cannot go against the Lord my God. So some say he's making it personal, so truly that he was a prophet of God that would then fall away because he went after uh, greediness in the wages of unrighteousness. Some say, no, that he was one who practiced divination. There's here evidence of that as we go through. I'll point it out to you. He was one that lived in that area that is known for false prophets and was known for astrologers and magicians and um, soothsayers. They were ones that were involved in occultic kinds of practices. That was kind of the headquarters, always kind of has been throughout the history of time, particularly in ancient times, 
where that was the center of false worship and false idols and occultic kinds of practices. And he's sitting in the middle of that. And so here is Balaam, interesting, these prophecies that are given, but also we see that he's going to be pulled in temptation to that which is ungodly, that which is sinful. And we're going to see that very, very clearly. It is also interesting that Balaam is mentioned in eight other books of the Bible. And he is mentioned in the New Testament, and it is never in a positive light. It is always in a negative light. Second Peter talks about the way of Balaam. That is, the way of Balaam is going after the wages of, un, of unrighteousness. He puts it, saying that, Peter, in Second Peter chapter 2, in that section that deals with false prophets and false teachers. We know that that little tiny epistle, Jude, talks about the error of Balaam which is greed. And then Jesus himself, when he was writing to the church of Pergamos, was writing to them about what he had against them, and that was the doctrine of Balaam. In other words, that they had followed the doctrine of Balaam, and we're going to see the doctrine of Balaam when we get to chapter 25. And that is Balaam is going to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to cause them into idolatry and sexual immorality. So there is strong evidence that he was one that really didn't have a heart for the Lord. Certainly he's going to be pulled away into temptation in this unrighteousness of, of uh, greed and unrighteousness of stumbling the children of Israel in idol worship. But one thing that we need to keep in mind is that God is going to use him to prophesy for the children of Israel these beautiful prophecies. So here is this individual. He has some kind of fame throughout the land, doesn't he? Because 300 miles away, he has the attention of the king of the Moabites and the leaders there. And he says to them, come to, to me and I want you to curse these people. They cover the face of the earth and, and they're right next to me. And I'm not able to defeat them, but maybe you can curse them because I know that he whom you curse is blessed and he whom you, uh, or he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So I want you to come and curse them. So he's offering money for him to do this. Now it is interesting where he is at there at Pethor. There was a discovery in the 1930s of um, this major city that was very close to probably where Pethor was, maybe even uh, similar cities. Um, but it was all in this valley called the Valley of the Euphrates. And in the excavations, they discovered a number of tablets. They, they discovered this large city that was called uh, Merai. And Merai was right there in the middle of that valley, and Pethora was right there in that valley as well. So they're probably a suburb or very close to each other. And in these tablets that they found, um, they found that there was this existence of this complex cult that was there, uh, of prophets and seers, and the activities that we're going to see described here. And so that gives us a little bit more insight of what was going on in that area. It gives us a little bit better understanding of Balaam's narrative here in the book of Numbers. So here's an individual that's living in that area where occultic practices are, are practiced. He is well known, and uh, he's being hired now to come and curse the children of Israel. So we read in verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And so here they, uh, you read this, and they want to pay him. And here he seems to be sincere, doesn't he, Balaam here? He says, Stay here. I need to see what the Lord says to me and speaks to me. And so this is where there are those who come along and say that he was a genuine believer. But it could be that he was one that believed in the gods of the Hebrew, but believed in other gods as well. So somehow he wants to hear from the Lord. And, and he says um, that you guys stay here and I'll come out and tell you what uh, God has told me, which he does in, uh, in the following verses. But verse 9, as he goes to hear from the Lord, God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Sippor, king of Moab, has sent me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now here's one of the reasons why I don't personally think that he was a genuine believer. 
He may have spoke the prophecies of God. Certainly he does, as we're going to see, and God's going to speak through him. But God would also use other non-believers to, to present a message. We see that in Genesis chapter 20. Remember he spoke to Ahimelech. It was Abraham and Sarah that were in his area. And it was Abraham that said to Sarah, Hey, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. And, you know, Abimelech is going to want you. So why don't we lie and say that we're brothers and sisters? And so he would take Sarah into his harem to take her as one of his wives. God came to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20 and said, Abimelech, you're a dead man. If you touch her, you're a dead man. So God spoke to Abimelech, who was this pagan king. We know that he did the same thing with Pharaoh there in the book of Genesis. As Pharaoh would receive a dream, he didn't know what it was, but it was a dream that came from God. Same with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 received one of the most powerful prophetic pictures that we have in all of scriptures. He didn't know what it meant, but Daniel came along, and he would then interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And again, it was back in Babylon in this area where he called in for the soothsayers and the magicians and the astrologers and the prophets and all that who could not interpret that dream, but Daniel did so it could be that God is just speaking through Balaam. He, he uh, indication here, what I see here is he says, listen, uh, as, as God says, what do these men want? Well, you know, Balak, he wants me to come and curse his people to come out of Egypt. He seems to not know exactly who they are, that they are God's people. And I think that if he was a genuine believer, that he would have known that they were God's people. And he wants me to drive them out and curse them. And so we read in... in um, Verse 13, that Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Sippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. So Balaam comes out, and he seems to be initially sincere. Hey, I can't go. The Lord said not to go. Now, again, I want to draw attention there um, to uh, verse 12, where God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You don't go. You don't curse them and know that they are blessed. So that is the direct word of God given to Balaam. So they go back, tell Balak. Balak says, bring more leaders, beg harder, bring more money, tell him that, uh, that the offer is even bigger, will honor you more than ever before. And so please come with this and curse this people. So verse 18, then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So this is the camp where those who say he was a believer, he was a genuine prophet of God, he would fall by the wayside because of covetousness and because of greed. Because he says here, I can't go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. But I think that what we need to really focus on tonight is that the ways and the doctrine and the error of Balaam that we can learn from and we can see where it is that he fails. And we can see, again, why the New Testament talks to him about Balaam and his ways and his errors and uh, his doctrine in a negative way. Because it's very clear here. So he seems to be sincere. He seems to be standing strong. But we're going to see that they're going to come back with a better offer even again. So coming back with this offer, verse 19, this is where the turning point is, I believe. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord might say to me. So when, backing up, Balaam goes to the Lord, says, you know, inquires, the Lord says, you're not to go, you're not to curse, know that they're blessed. They go back to Balak, Balak sends them back with a better offer. And here he says, in his sincerity in verse 18, even if you fill this house full of silver, I can't go against the Lord my God. And he should have left it at that, right? And he should have said, go beat it. I'm not interested. But he didn't. 
Verse 19, the reason why I say it's a turning point is because, well, maybe uh, you guys stay here. And maybe I might know what more the Lord might say to me. The Lord was pretty clear, wasn't he? The Lord said, don't go and don't curse and they are blessed. But here it seems like maybe I'm open to some negotiation here. And maybe I'll seek if the Lord will give me more to say. And, And that's something very subtle that you and I can do. That God's word will declare to us, don't do this, don't go there, and this is how you're going to be blessed. But sometimes when we do want to go where we're not supposed to go, when we do get tempted, because there seems to be a good offer that's in front of us, but we know that it's not what the Lord would have us to do. And it doesn't have to do with money. Maybe it's a relationship of some sort. It could be for some people drugs or it could be alcohol. For some people maybe an opportunity to steal or be dishonest or whatever it might be. And if we are not careful, sometimes the process in following that temptation and and taking that temptation is that we begin to negotiate. We begin to negotiate and we begin to say, you know what, maybe there's a loophole somehow that God has in His Word. And we need to be careful to stand on what God says very clearly to us. That, you know what, you're not to go, you're not to curse, and know that my people are blessed. And that should have settled it for him. So we see here that, again, he, he is going to give in to these temptations that get stronger and stronger as, as time goes around. And um, he says, I'm going to see what God has to say. Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Verse 22, Then God's anger was aroused because he went. Now you might read this and you think, isn't this kind of confusing? God said, don't go, don't curse, they are blessed. So here at Balaam, he stands on that, but then as he gets a better offer, he says, maybe I'll see what the Lord might say. And the Lord comes back and says, you know what, go with them, but you're only going to speak what I tell you to speak. And then when he goes with them, God's angry at him. But here is what I believe is what we see God's direct and perfect will was for him to stay and not even go and not curse and know that my people are blessed. Here I believe what we're saying is what theologians call the permissive will of God. There was such a pull on him that he allows him to go. God's will is still going to be done. He's not going to be able to curse them. He's only going to speak blessing but he permits him to go. The direct and perfect will of God was that he would stay and that he would not go whatsoever. But because of this temptation, he's permitting this to go. And if here the important thing for you and I to be concerned about and, and to think about, if God's direct will was for Balaam's, uh, if his, let me say this again, God's direct will, If it was Balaam's only concern, then I think he would have stayed. But I think he had a love for money. And he's being offered, and he is driven by greed, and that's what the New Testament tells us. That there is the way of Balaam that is greediness. There is the way of Balaam that is covetousness. And if Balaam was only concerned with the direct will of God, he would have stayed. But God's permitting him to go. And we know that God's, again, as we continue here, we're going to see a Christophany or Theophany, appearance of Jesus, as verse 22, the angel of the Lord took his stand in a way as an adversary against him, and he was riding on his donkey and his two servants with, with him. We're going to see that the Lord's going to tell him, your way is perverse, Balaam. And it was displeasing to the Lord. My point is simply this. I always want to pray, Lord, I want to be in your direct will. I don't want to try to wiggle out or or try to negotiate or whatever it might be. But Lord, I just want to stand on your promise and your will for me as you direct me and as you guide me. And I don't want to move until you tell me to move. And it's like what we've seen here in these books, in particularly the book of Exodus, that when the pillar of cloud 
by day and the pillar of fire by night. The, the, that is the tangible presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God moved and the children of Israel would move. When it stopped, it stopped. When it went left, they went left. When it went right, they went right. I shouldn't call it it. It was the presence of the Lord that was guiding them and directing them. And that's where I want to be. Lord, wherever you guide me, I want to follow you and be right where you want me to be. But I don't want to be, how can it that I can negotiate and how can it that I can wiggle out and how can I you know, go in this direction or get a little bit closer and all these things. So Balaam here is being pulled by temptation. The angel of the Lord comes. I, again, believe that this is a Christophany. The reason is, as we will see in verse 31 and verse 34, I'll point those out to you. He's riding on this donkey. And so in verse uh, 23, we read, Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back on the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And so what we see here is we see that this donkey sees the angel of the Lord three times. He sees him on the road, the Lord, and so he goes out in the field. He starts doing some four-wheel, you know, drive out here in the fields out here, and, and Balaam doesn't know what's going on, so he's striking this, this poor donkey. Then, as they continue on, there's the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn, and I'm sure an awesome sight, that's in this narrow pathway between two vineyards, and the vineyards, they would line with walls to keep people out of the vineyards and predators and things like that. So he's trying to sneak by the angel of the Lord and he presses up against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And then they're in a narrow part of the road and then we see that the donkey just um, in verse 27 saw the angel of the Lord. She lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. So Balaam have had it, man. This is the first case of road rage. So he begins to beat his donkey here with his staff. And here in verse 28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden? Ever since I became yours to this day, was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. So here's the thing. All of a sudden, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey says, Why are you beating me? Haven't I been a good donkey? I've done everything that you've said. I've you know, taken you where you wanted to go. I haven't done this going out in the field or crushing you, your foot against a wall or anything like that. And what's interesting here is we see that it was um, Balaam has answers with no hesitation. <laughs> he says, I was going to kill you. And he's having this conversation with this donkey. Pretty amazing, isn't it? But I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind as we look at this. Number one is the donkey saw the angel Lord. He was more spiritually perspective or had a spiritual perspective more than, you know, Balaam, who was clueless. And that donkey didn't have the spiritual gift of prophecy. But he did recognize and acknowledge his creator. And Balaam had spiritual gift of prophecy, obviously, but he walked in disobedience and walked in greed. And I have seen it with individuals that are used in the body of Christ very mildly. Maybe they have the gift of prophecy. Maybe they have the gifts of giving a word of wisdom. Incredible teachers, evangelists, talented in leading worship or whatever it might be. But all of a sudden there was greed or covetousness or sin that came into their lives. And they didn't turn away from it. And they got sloppy in their ministries and they're no longer in ministry. Because they were no longer spiritually discerning and, and sensitive to the Lord that was there. Trying to pull them back to that place of humility. Like this donkey was humble. And, and he knew that, man, this is, 
This is a serious sight. And he didn't have the gift of, of prophecy. He didn't have the, the gift of Balaam. He wasn't going to receive the money. But he was sensitive to the things of the Lord. And my point simply tonight is this. That wherever the Lord has us, that more than anything, that we would be sensitive to pleasing him and walking in his ways. And one of the saddest things in my years of ministry is to know guys personally that had incredible ministries and being used to the Lord that are no longer in ministry because of greed or because of sin, immorality, covetousness, whatever it might be. No longer being used to the Lord in the way that they could and the way that they should have because there was an arrogance that was there or sloppiness or whatever the case it might be. And this reminds me of something very important here. God opened up the mouth of a donkey. He can use a donkey to speak. And I know that you say he does it every Wednesday and Sunday morning here at Calvary Chapel. But as I remember this, it keeps me in a place of humility. That God can use whoever he wishes, and I'm very grateful and thankful that he desires to use me and my stuttering and my stumbling as I teach, to be able to have the opportunity and privilege to teach this fellowship here at Calvary Chapel. And I never want to get to that place where I'm not spiritually discerning or, or sensitive to the Lord and the things of the Lord. To get to that place where I'm not dependent upon the Lord or a place where I want more or greed. You see, in ministry, it's very easy to lust. It really is. Especially in today's mentality. And it needs to be in a place of humility of, Lord, thank you for using me. Because if you can use a donkey to speak your word, maybe there's hope for me as well. So here's a conversation that's going on. And so here <laughs> this donkey speaks. And in verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. So this is one of the reasons why I believe that this is a Christophany or a theophany, because here this angel of the Lord is saying, Your ways are perverse before me. If this was just a created angel, he would have said that your ways are perverse before the Lord. But it's personal here. In verse 33, the donkey saw me and turned aside from these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now and let her live. So in other words, you need to understand, Balaam, this donkey saved your life. Because if this donkey hadn't turned aside, I would have killed you and she would have lived. And so verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I um, did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. So again, it's personal. If I've displeased you, but Balaam doesn't get it. I mean, just a few verses ago, the Lord said very clearly to Balaam, I'm coming against you because your way is perverse before me. And now in verse 34, well, if it displeases you, then I'll turn back. He knows it displeases the Lord that he's going to go. But the Lord's going to permit him to go. And so we see that in verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men but only the word that I speak to you that you shall speak. So Balaam went to the princess of Balak. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? So Balak, he's kind of sweating here a little bit, isn't he? He's anxious, and he's saying, why didn't you come sooner? And, and I could have honored you. You knew that I was going to pay you handsomely and, and a lot of money. And so Balaam, in verse 38, said to Balak, look, I've come to you now. Now have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So here he says to, to Balak, listen, I'm only going to speak what God puts into my mouth. Perhaps he really believes that, or maybe he's just covering his hide. If he does fail which he is going to fail in cursing the children of Israel. So verse 39, Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kerjath-Husoth. And Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princess 
who were with him. In verse 41, so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam, brought him up to the high places of Baal, and from there he might observe the extent of the people. Now Baal, we're going to see in a few chapters, was one of the gods that the Moabites worship that's going to come into that idol worship, into the camp and corrupt the children of Israel. So here is the high places of Baal. The high places, as you read all throughout the Old Testament, that you see that the Lord said that you need to tear down the high places. You remember that in the Old Testament? Over and over again. The Lord comes to the leaders of Judah, to the leaders of Israel. and says you need to tear down those high places. The high places were those worships of idol worship. And, and it's interesting, even some of the good kings that came along in Judah, that they would tear down and get rid of the idols, but they left the high places. And that was a mistake. Because what would happen after a while is the people would go back. The places were still there for worship. They would go and they would worship their false idols and commit all kinds of immorality. And you can do a study on it. We've talked about it quite extensively as we've gone through those books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The high places. The high places. You go through first and second chronicles particularly that this king left the high places. This king built up the high places. My point, don't have any high places in your heart. Okay? I believe in the Lord. That's what some of the kings, you, you look at some of those kings that did right in the sight of the Lord, but they didn't tear down the high places. And the Lord desires for us to tear down those high places in our hearts, any place in our hearts where there can be wrong worship, where there can be temptation, where there can be whatever sin that we can get involved in. Uh, I believe in you, Lord, but I'm just going to kind of leave this high place. I'm going to leave my computer downstairs in the basement so I can pull up whatever that it is that causes you to stumble and sin and carnality. Oh, Lord, I believe in you, and I love you. But I'm going to leave this cable TV so I can watch these channels that cause me to carnal out. Now, hear my heart on this. I'm not telling you you shouldn't have TV or cable. That's between you and the Lord. But is it a high place? Oh, Lord, I, I love you, but I have this place where... There is problems and difficulties and it causes us to turn away from the Lord. And what we're going to see here is this prophecy of Balaam. He's taken up on the high places and he's involved in divination. He's involved in false sacrifice. Chapter 23, as Balaam said to Balak, we'll go through this very quickly. Build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak just did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go, and perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And so here we see that this offering that they give, it's referred to as a burnt offering, but it's not prescribed in any of the offerings that we saw in the book of Leviticus, not in this way. So this is a practice of, of pagan ritual, and you, Balak, stand by your offering here. I'll go see what the Lord speaks to me, and I'll come back and tell you what he says. So God met Balaam, and he said to him, I prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. So Balaam here says to God, I've, I've done this offering, this pagan ritual. Again, to me, it's another indication that he didn't, didn't know the ways of the Lord. He wasn't a genuine believer. Because God had not prescribed this offering in this way at all, and he thinks he's pleasing the Lord. Hey, I've done this. And so verse 5, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, and he said, and all the princes of Moab, and he took up his oracle and said, So here is Balak. Balaam comes back to him receiving this prophecy, and, and Balak's excited, thinking, All right, this is it, finally. He's going to curse the children of Israel. So Balaam comes back, took up his oracle, again, a, occultic kind of practice in verse 7 Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram from the mountains of the east come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel 
How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There are people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like this. And then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? So here we see what happens. How can you know, I curse them when God has not cursed them, but he's blessed them. And God knows what you're doing, Balak. He knows that you have sent me. And so God says that they are blessed and that he's going to bless them to a great number. It reminds me of what God told Abraham, remember, in Genesis chapter 12 when he first called Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, and whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And that promise still holds true today. That's why I pray for our nation, especially this 4th of July, that we as a nation would not only turn back to the Lord and recognize our need for the Lord, but also that our nation, that the Bible very clearly says, I think one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why this nation is blessed is because we have been a friend to Israel. But I get concerned with the statements of our leaders and I'm just giving you an opinion at this point, and our own president, it seems to be more and more beholding Israel out of arm's length. God said, whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed. And there are nations all around Israel that want to curse her, and we know from the prophetic picture very clearly that God is going to deal with those nations very harshly. So I pray for America that we would stay friends of Israel, that we would support her. And I understand there's a lot of controversy in all of this. But God made a promise in the scripture, and God keeps his promises. And so here he's saying, Moab, listen, listen, Balak, that they're blessed, and you can't curse them, and I know what it is that you're doing. So Balak says, how could you do that? So Balak, verse 13, said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them, and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. He's not going to give up. Here's a different strategy. Let's go to a different place. You can just see the outskirts. Maybe you'll be able to curse just some of them. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pishkah, built seven altars, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Again, this pagan sacrifice they give. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. And then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balaam, Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? So he's hoping maybe this will work this time. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, I'm here. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will not do. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I can reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Verse 22, God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It must now be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done, look, the people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion, and shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, as his blood pressure is going up, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, All that the Lord speaks that I must do? To summarize very quickly what the second prophecy it is a rebuke on Balak. God cannot lie. He said that he would bless them. They are his people. And I have been commanded to bless them. And I cannot reverse that. And know this, that there is no divination in them. Verse 23, he will see them to victory. And in verse 21, there is no iniquity or wickedness in them. Now I read that and I think, what? We're going to see in a few chapters that they're going to be given into divination. We've seen their rebellion and their murmuring, complaining eight times in the book of Numbers. What do you mean he found no iniquity in them? But I think it shows us an important truth in the scriptures as God's people. God sees our sins. He's aware of our sins. The intents of the heart, the sins of the heart when we do sin. So he sees us practically. He knew and was aware of the sins of Israel and will continue to. But positionally, 
He sees us clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees us clothed in righteousness because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what here is, is being pictured and what's being pointed out. Practically, oh, I, I was, you know, with Dr. Song and we went out to get some coffee and he was telling me about his next project, missionary project, and, and uh, we're driving back to the church and he says, this, this man is the most humble man, loves the Lord, and, and just incredible individual and incredible man to fellowship with. And he says, you know, my heart is just desperately wicked. And he wasn't talking about some sin he's involved in or any of those things. He was just a humble man that was aware that he was still a sinner. And he wasn't at that point of perfection. And I said, you know, thank God that we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And positionally, we are. And that's how God sees us. So here, the other thing, too, is God brings them out of Egypt. In verse 21, we know that the Lord his God is with him, that is, with Israel. And that was an important statement to Balak. And this is what I want to close with. Because in that ancient time, and you see it all throughout the scriptures, you see it in 1 Kings chapter 20. The Syrians, when they attacked the house of Israel, they thought they were defeated there in, in the plains. So they thought, well, the God of Israel must be a God of mountains. So they went to battle against the mountains, and they found out that the God of Israel is everywhere. In the Second Kings chapter 5, Naaman, the Syrian commander that was healed, of leprosy when he dipped in the Jordan River. He, he took back some dirt with them to Syria because he thought God of Israel just lived in Israel. They thought that gods were just kind of territorial. But here Balak is hearing and, and understanding that God is with them and he's going to be with them when they go into promised land. God is with them always, whether they're in Egypt, whether they're in the wilderness, whether they're in the promised land. And I want you guys to remember something. Because one of the things that I will tell people when they call and when they're going through difficulties or whatever, know this, as a child of God, God is with you wherever you are tonight. And that he loves you and he desires to work on your behalf. And as we come to the communion table here, understand this, that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and because of his love for you. And if you can trust him, with your salvation, you can trust him with your life now, knowing that he's with you. And we come to the communion table, again, understanding, pressing our hearts in on what Jesus Christ did for us. 